One of the things that is central to what we do uh, as a church is hear from God's Word. And just before Pete comes to uh, speak to us, uh, we're going to hear from a portion of uh, the Bible, from the book of Acts. Uh, it, will, it, it is up on the screen. So the book of Acts is the account of the early church. So this is a description of what the early church did right at the very beginning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. All right. Uh, welcome, uh, welcome to, to, to church today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Pete, and uh, if you're watching from home or live stream or later on um, after we post this on YouTube or in the hall, welcome to you. And I just want to remind you, uh, on every slide there's going to be a link uh, for questions um, after what Matt said about me answering questions. I hope that's not like an invitation or a big target to fire every question. No, you can, okay? Whatever you want to ask ask it. Um, if there's time, I'll answer one or two of them today. But we are actually going to collect questions primarily for Fresh, which you heard about earlier on. So there's incentive to come to Fresh, but also because Fresh is really the occasion where the setting where we want to ask, uh, ask and answer as many questions as possible. So please um, help us uh, collect questions. It can be on what you hear today. It can be on anything about Christianity or the Bible that you've ever had. Here's your free go to to go for it. Okay, I want to know if anyone here is honest enough, show of hands if you're honest enough, if you've ever been involved in a health fad, right? Any sort of health fad, dieting fad, food fad, if you've ever been involved in a health fad, stick your hand up. Come on, who's honest? My hand is up. I've been involved. All right, <laughs> a lot of hesitant hands. It's like, am I going to be humiliated. Okay, thank you, thank you. Um, let me tell you a few of the most bizarre ones that actually have all be, been debunked, all right? These are all debunked. Um, eating placentas, supposed to help you, or oxygen canister shots that you take with you, and apparently Simon Cowell was really into that, um, and you just take a shot of oxygen. What about these? Basically, they're sauna suits, or I use them to work out on, and you get really disgusting and sweaty, and supposedly that's better for weight loss or something. The purple diet, apparently Mariah Carey was into this one. You only eat purple-colored foods. And, of course, the one that sounds the most uncomfortable and painful, colonic irrigation. If you don't know what it is, you're going to have to Google it, because I don't want to describe it. Okay. <laughs> Um, in 2016, a Harvard, this, the Harvard School of Public Health in America, um, the professor published an article in the USA Today, so this is from Harvard, so it's a, you know, one of the top universities, the School of Public Health, they kind of recommend policies. The, the article, as you can see, is called Religion May Be a Miracle Drug, and uh, let me just quote one paragraph. He says, if one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value 
would our society place on this miracle elixir? That's a pretty enticing kind of question, isn't it? Coming from a guy who's head of the School of Public Health. And the answer he gives in the article is that going to church is that miracle drug. That statistically, church attendance will reduce mortality rates by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period. And churchgoers are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, less likely to commit suicide, have greater purpose in life, less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled. Right? This is coming from Mr. Professor there. What do you make of that? Because if he's right, then church seems to be pretty irreplaceable, right? But if he's right, then why isn't church more positively embraced by individuals and society as a whole? I mean, let's be honest, looking around Australia and the West, it's sort of the opposite, isn't it? Church and religion used to have pride of place in society, but now it's at best irrelevant. I mean, church attendance and religious affiliation in Australia and the West have been dropping for decades, but not just irrelevant. At worst, wouldn't you agree that church, at least from appearances, can be downright damaging? I, I, I should have titled this talk, in fact, I will now title the talk, The Church is an Irrelevant, Indefensible or irreplaceable. I mean, you just have to think about the sexual and spiritual abuse and cover-ups of the church in recent years that are now being exposed, and rightly so. It's a pretty horrible history, isn't it? Or or even go back further, the the role that the church has played in, in history to oppress people and races and groups and blacks and aborigines and LGBT and or you think of the witch hunts and the crusades and the religious wars. The church and all that it represents is not just irrelevant to a lot of people in our society. It's condemnable. It's indefensible. How could you? Um, Gandhi is supposed to have said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. You Christians are so unlike your Christ. You see, you might be here and you might have been hurt by your church experience. And you may not reject Jesus entirely, but belonging to an institutional religion, no way. So what do we do about all of this? I mean, is there any way of saving the church from being either irrelevant or indefensible? Well, first things first, I think we need to know what we mean by church, right? I mean, a quick listen to how people use the the word church in conversation will show you that People mean different things. So, I'm going to church. Or, the church covered up the abuse. Or, the church on the corner of my street has just been sold. I mean, in each of those three statements, we're talking about different meanings of church. So, what do we mean? Well, let me begin with what isn't church. You see, there are three common misunderstandings of what church is. That is actually what it isn't. Um, and we'll look at what it is later, but the first is a building, the second is a school for morals, and the third is an institution. So firstly, a building. Um, a lot of people think the church, you just think of the building, the Christian building um, that's seen in pretty much every Aussie suburb, um, and it's everything from, you know, if you've been to Europe and those beautiful, gorgeous cathedrals, but also, you know, the tiny country town wooden shacks with a cross on top, that's what we mean by church, the building. And so to attend church is to come to a building on a Sunday. 
But church as a building, of course, is also more than just a building, even in this understanding of church, because it's what the building stands for, right? Uh, it stands for Christianity, but it also stands for the place that Christianity has had in society. Like Western civilization pretty much went hand in hand with this symbol, this building. As Christianity spread every town, every city, every suburb, this building would go up. Okay, it's a symbol of the dominance of Christianity in the Western world. And, and before the modern era, the church was the center of town life. It was the religious, the social, the family, the political center of a city or of a town. So this building is not just a building. It's a very powerful symbol, at, at least it used to be. But that's the thing, isn't it? It used to be. Because it's now pretty irrelevant, isn't it? This, this building and its symbol in a post-Christian, secular West this building, this building, what it stands for, it's more like a relic, it's more like a museum. It's no longer the center of community and life in the city and town. It's more likely to nowadays be empty, rezoned for development, sold or turned into a museum. It's irrelevant. But probably more than that, if you go a bit deeper, it's actually the building and what it symbolizes is actually condemnable. It's indefensible. Because what it stood for, as a lot of us will know, is it can stand for colonialism, right? The, the spread of Christianity has been forced on native cultures. As these buildings went up, local cultures and religions were lost forever. And if that's the case, and if that's what church is, the building, then what it stands for is actually indefensible. It's horrible, isn't it? That's the first. Second, a school for morals. Uh, many non-religious parents, maybe some parents here today even, uh, you'll send your kids to church because church is seen as a place where kids can learn or better manners, learn to socialize, become better people, you know. I might not believe in God, but I'll send my kids to youth group on Friday nights because it's better than them staying home and playing League of Legends. Um, and some of you are probably allowed or encouraged to go to church or scripture classes, kids, for this reason. So church is basically Sunday school. What you are schooled in on Sunday is primarily how to be a good person. But if that's your view of church, then it's pretty irrelevant nowadays, right? I mean, we're in a secular society. You don't need church to learn how to do good. Schools, in fact, offer secular ethics classes now in place of Scripture. It's teaching you how to be good. Or people, as you know, will live just as moral or better morals sometimes, especially if you compare with the worst of Christians, without church. But more than irrelevant isn't the morality, this side of the church, isn't that responsible actually for so much intolerance and judgmentalism and bigotry and hate speech? You see, what the church stands for in terms of morals is indefensible in that way. It's the reason why people feel so alienated, because they're judged, because they're discriminated against. So if this is your view of church, then yes, at best irrelevant, at worst indefensible. What about the last one? A lot of the times we talk about church as an institution, right? It can be a social institution or even a political institution. Now we know that in history, it once had great influence. And as an institution, even with the horrible stuff, it actually did great good. Look in history, you'll know that it was churches that started hospitals, orphanages, provided social welfare, the homeless, the poor... But you see, if that's your primary view of church, then nowadays that's kind of irrelevant. I mean, we live in a society where the government does all the social stuff now. I mean, if you're unemployed, 
I gather you're not lining up at church, you're lining up at Service New South Wales, aren't you? And in fact, if you want to go a bit deeper again, there's an, it's, it's, it's this aspect of church as an organization, an institution. Isn't that the reason why it's been horribly abusive? Isn't it trying to hold on to power and covering up all its abuses as the, the, the institution of power? So, you know, look in history, the, the Spanish Inquisitions, the witch hunts, the crusades, and more recently, the cover-up of horrible abuses. Isn't that tied up with church as an institution, which makes it indefensible? All right, so you see how it depends on what we mean by church, but if this is what we mean by church, then at best it's irrelevant, at worst it's indefensible. But the point I'm trying to make is this. This isn't what church means. If you look at Jesus and what he says about church and what the Bible means by church, in fact, I'll actually suggest that it's because people have these false views of church that it's irrelevant or indefensible. The fact that the more that we think this is what church is, the more it will be irrelevant and indefensible. So actually, definitions matter. Now, lots of people will reject church because that's what they think church is. But I want to suggest there's another way to go rather than just reject it outright. I want to suggest actually the opposite. Rather than reject church, we actually need to go deeper. We actually need to go deeper to understand what the church really is, what it really stands for. Go beneath the surface. What does Jesus stand for? Because I want to suggest if you go deep enough, what the church is and what it believes actually will show it not to be irrelevant or indefensible. It'll actually be irreplaceable. All right, go deeper. So what is church? Well, most basically, the word church, as it's used in the Bible, means an assembly or a gathering. Right, of people, an assembly or gathering of people. In fact, it's not even a really religious word in the New Testament. Um, it, it, it's used to, to mean a local council at times. Even an unruly mob okay, was called church because it just means a gathering of people. And so the people idea is central to the church. Right? It's not a building. It's not a school. It's not an institution in the way that the Bible uses it, in the way Jesus talks about it. It's a people. That's the central heart part of church. But what kind of a people? Well, I'm going to show you a part of the Apostles' Creed. Some of you might know it, but I won't read it out. But the bit highlighted, it says, I believe in the holy universal church, the communion of saints. And I want to take three ideas there that really help us understand what church is. Holy, universal, and community or communion. So firstly, holy. The church is a holy people. Now, you, some of us immediately think holy means holier than thou, okay? You're self-righteous, you're judgmental. Well, if that's what you think holy means, you, it couldn't be further from the truth because holy means to be special to God and set apart for God, right? To be special for God. But here's the thing. The Bible's view is that something had to happen for people to become holy. God had to do something for people to become holy. Let me show you a passage from Titus. It's a bit of a long one, but it's a really important one, so pay attention. Let me read it out for you. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. 
We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's what makes you holy. Whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified, means being made right with God by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. It's a lot in there, but I hope you get the main point. People do not make themselves holy. We all start the same, every single person. We start as sinful, rebellious people, rejecting God, deserving of hell. But here's the amazing thing. God loves us. And because He loves us, He sent His one and only Son, Jesus. Jesus, who became a man and was the only perfect and completely holy man in every single way. But Jesus, who went to the cross. And why did He go to the cross? It doesn't spell it out there. But it's so that He could do a swap with us. See, Jesus on the cross, He takes our sin, our rebellion, our punishment. He takes hell in our place and He says, I will take your sin and you can have my perfection. You can have my holiness. It'll be counted as yours as I count your sin as mine. He does a swap with us, which means that our sin is canceled. We get forgiveness and most importantly, we get to be holy. And remember, it's not because of the righteous things we've done. You don't make yourself holy by acting holier than thou. No, God creates a holy people out of a bunch of broken, sinful people. What does that mean for the church? It means that the church, far from being a club of holier-than-thous, is actually a a gathering of people, and you heard it today, Matt said, um, we admit our brokenness and our unrighteousness and our sinfulness. We admit that we need Jesus, that we messed up, and we will get it wrong, and that we need God to change us. Now, this doesn't mean that we Christians can be excused for all the bad things that's been done in the past. Because a lot of what the church and Christians have done, or at least in the name of Christ, have been indefensible. But can I just mention two things, just to keep in mind? Number one, bad things are done by doctors, educators, politicians. You'll know that, right? But that in itself doesn't mean we dismiss medicine because doctors are bad, or education because some educators are bad, or government because politicians may be bad. No, there are good doctors and bad doctors. There are good teachers and bad teachers. There are good politicians and even lawyers and cops, right? See, what's done in the name of Jesus, like the Capitol riots, you know, with the Jesus banners, it doesn't necessarily mean we dismiss Jesus or the church. One doesn't necessarily follow the other. In fact, number two that I want to mention is, once you understand church as a sinful people who are holy only because of the action of God and Jesus and what He did alone, you will actually see that Jesus the one that is the head of the church, the one that Christians worship, Jesus is actually the church's biggest critic. You got that? Jesus is the biggest critic of those who do bad things in his name. Um, We don't have time to look it up, but in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a story, a parable, which is a story with a meaning of wheat and weeds. So he tells a story of a farmer who in his farm or in his field will let the wheat and the weeds grow up together until harvest time. And it's only at harvest that he will separate the wheat from the weeds. 
And this is a parable about the final judgment. Jesus is saying, look, in this world, if the field represents the church, there are going to be those who call themselves Christians who are going to be wheat, genuine, as well as weeds, fake. And they will both be in the church at the one time until judgment day when he sorts them out. But he will sort them out. Right? Because who hates hypocrisy the most? It's Jesus, right? Let's read about him. See, the church is at its best when it understands that as people, we're no better than anyone outside of the church. We're holy and special to God, not because of anything we've done, but because of Jesus and Him alone. Now, what this creates, I want to suggest, is something really beautiful. It creates humility. Now, you need to know that humility absolutely changed the world, and it came from Christianity. Even in Australia, where we're very secular, very post-Christian, I mean, humility is seen as a virtue, is it not? I mean, we hate arrogant, snobby, proud people. We, we have this thing called tall poppy syndrome. Have you heard of it? Now, anyone rises too high, we want to cut them down because we, we hate those who are proud and arrogant. Now, that, even though we're in a post-Christian society, that is seen as normal. Humility is seen as a virtue only because of Christianity and the way that the early church influenced society. Because the, in ancient Greece and Rome, humility was not a virtue. It was weakness in both Latin and Greek. Guess what? The word humility is the same word for humiliation. There's no difference. They didn't even have a different word for it. Even uh, over 100 years ago, the, uh, the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche he mocked Christianity because it exalted humility as a virtue, but it's really just justifying weakness. You see, you need to know the society that Christianity came in does not consider, did not consider humility as a virtue. But it was because Christians, because of the church, in following Christ and realizing that we are no better than anyone else, that we actually value humility as something good and virtuous. This changed society. This is the reason why Christians throughout history have, in humility, welcomed the lowest, the most marginalized, the lepers, the untouchables, the prisoners, those that other societies and religions reject. Why do we welcome? It's because as a holy people, we were anything but holier than thou. Because genuine Christians know that if not for Jesus and his humbling of himself to save us, we would also be Exactly the same. Because as a Christian, I know that if Jesus can save me and love me, then he can save and love anyone else, and I am to do the same, all right? That's what has happened because of the right understanding of church and what it means to be holy. But it leads to the second thing, universal. The church is, the Christian religion, the church is, Universal in that it is diverse and it embraces people of all races, all cultures, all ages, all classes, all educational backgrounds, all genders. And so you see in uh, Revelation 7 verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, uh, every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Uh, this is not even a point of you can argue against that Christianity is by far the most diverse movement in history. 
and today. Which actually means that we need to um, take a little bit with a grain of salt the reports of Christianity's decline. In that, yes, Christianity has been and is declining in the West, but guess what? In the majority world, Christianity is growing. In places like Africa, in South America, in Asia, in China, in India, the two most populous nations on earth, Christianity is growing. Even in the Middle East, in places like Iran, Christianity is exploding. It's diverse. Now, why and how? Well, from a human level, it's because the church at its best is the great equalizer, okay? This is why it's so diverse and universal, because Jesus accepted and treasured everyone. We saw that in the kids' talk, right? He welcomed everyone. And his church historically has done the same. So, You might be surprised to know that the church, the Christian church, was the one from the beginning, like Jesus did, who championed women. That was unheard of in the Roman world. And not just women, children especially. One author, in fact, went as far to say that Christianity was the single greatest breakthrough against child abuse in history by getting rid of infanticide in the Roman world, in the Greek world, Babies were regularly thrown, discarded, left out to die, seen as normal. It was Christianity that changed that. Christianity protected and treated slaves well in an age when slavery was part of the social and economic fabric of their world. We have commands to slave owners in the New Testament about treating slaves essentially as brothers and sisters. And if that wasn't enough, and it isn't because slavery is horrible, but then in the 18th and 19th century, guess what? It was the church that was a Christianity that was behind the abolition of slavery and the slave trade through people like William Wilberforce, who was a committed Christian. You see, when Jesus' people act like him, it's actually the opposite of bigotry and violence and hatred that we're often accused of. It's the opposite of that. Now, note, this doesn't mean that the church won't believe or speak about things that our culture will find offensive. You'll know that. I mean, the biblical view of sexuality, marriage, protecting children and unborn, that's not going to be popular in our culture. Our culture may even label it as offensive. We may get labeled as being bigots. I hope you see that's not necessarily the case. But the church is most like Jesus when it speaks about these things with conviction, yes, we've got to hold to what we believe and what the Bible says, what Jesus says, but we do it with love and gentleness. We haven't always done that, I know. When we haven't, we need to repent when we fail. But here's the thing, when we disagree, we don't shout louder, we don't silence opponents, we don't use violence, we don't humiliate, we don't cancel. We continue to show love and welcome even those with whom we disagree. And, And you might be one of those who feels very strongly about what the church stands for, what Christianity stands for versus what the culture stands for. And you're welcomed here. And we would love to chat with you more. So that's the second one. Universal. A diverse group of people. Last of all, it's a community. Right? You get one of the key metaphors for church in the Bible is a body. A body with a head, Jesus, but all of its members as part of the body to function together, to grow and serve together. 
And we saw that in the description of the early church, right? What a beautiful picture this was. Um, you see it there. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And then in sentence 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes. They ate with glad and sincere hearts. And then the last bit, every day the numbers were added because of how beautiful this early picture of community was. Now, for so many people, this is what drew them to Jesus. And you might be here today because it was this community. Like you didn't think much about the Bible. You didn't know much about Jesus. But it was people. It was being invited. It was seeing from inside out that there was something unique about this Christian community. Now, if you're not clear about it, I just want to suggest to you, go to a wedding. That's right, go to a wedding. I've done a lot of weddings. I've done Christian weddings. I've even done non-Christian weddings. I've attended Christian weddings. I've attended non-Christian weddings. And can I just tell you, and this is not, you know, obviously it's broad brushstrokes, but you will see the massive difference in terms of community life when you go to a Christian wedding versus a non-Christian wedding. I mean, there's still beautiful weddings and all that kind of stuff, but you will see a massive difference. I'm not just talking about size, but size is one of those things. Because, but it's not just size because ethnic weddings tend to be large anyway. But you go to a Christian wedding, and what you'll notice, any wedding, those of you who be married here, you'll know. The involvement, right? Who's ushering? Who's helped coordinate flowers? Who's doing the photos? Who's doing the, the catering? It's your Christian community. Christian weddings just have a bunch of people saying, yeah, I'll help, I'll help, I'll help, I'll help. Basically, you get a lot of free stuff because all your friends are helping, right? What's, what's going on there? If you go to a non-Christian wedding, that does not happen. All right? And as a pastor, I can give you so many examples how this community aspect of church has been so beautiful. Like, I, I, I've run out of examples. I'm just going to give you one. Uh, a Christian mate, he, um, he was telling me this week, we'll call him John, um, how he grew up in an in abusive home, basically. His, his father was both absent and abusive, and his mother... Um, uh, suffered a severe mental illness all his life. So you can imagine what kind of home he grew up in. Uh, but as he talked about it, though he was you know, upset that that was his experience, um, I, I asked him, so how, because he's a dad now, I said, how, how, does, how do you think that's affected the way that you raise your kids and your family life? Because you really didn't have any models. And you know what he said to me? He said, you know what? God provided another family for me. Uh, as, as a youth, he was brought along to church. As a youth, he got converted. And then he said, in the church family, he called it a family, this community, he had mums and dads and models and older brothers and sisters, people who gave him the love and the attention and the mentoring and the modeling that he, he never got at home. And he said, that saved me. John's story is just one of hundreds that we could tell you if you asked around. See, the government can replace social services. It can't replace what is unique about church as community. And by the way, the government knows that, okay? And what it does for the health and well-being of churchgoers as well as wider society, the government knows that. And that's why the government is interested. Thank you uh, that our government is interested in what happens with church. So it's a community. You got that? Let me close with an invitation. Uh, last week, it was on the Bible, and my challenge was... you for you to read the Bible for yourself as an adult. Well, this week, same kind of challenge, but a different, on a different topic. 
Here's the challenge. Here's an invitation to taste the real church for yourself as an adult. Right? Not, not the building, not the school of morals, not the institution, but church as people. Church as a diverse, loving, humble, and holy community. Taste it for yourself. You can do it through, through our church, but there are also, you know, if you live a bit further away, you're watching online, there's likely, especially if you live in Australia and Sydney, likely to be great church communities all around you. But here's the thing, though, I do want to say, to really experience it from the inside, you, you can't just come along, like, do come along, but at some point, um, you'll need to know that church is a special kind of membership. <laughs> it's not like any other club. You can't just buy into it. You can't be born into it. You're not born a Christian, all right? You can't just socialize yourself into it. At the end of the day, at some point, you're going to have to be born again into this membership. That's what Jesus says. You've got to be born again, which means you've got to enter into relationship with Jesus. That's how you really get to experience church as a member of the body fully. Which is why this series, we want to invite you not just to you know, come to church, but to find out more about Jesus. Take up His invitation to trust and follow Him. Because then you can be born again and then you can really experience what it's like to be on the inside of this wonderful, not perfect, but wonderful community. I'm going to get the band to come up here. We're going to sing again, and I'll explain to you ways that we can respond in a moment. Let's, uh, let's, uh, yeah. let's get ready to stand and sing.